0: From KYW News Radio
1: 103.9 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program, organ donors save lives. Hi, I'm Raquel Williams. Coming up on Bridging Philly, with every tragic event comes grief, and therapy methods vary, but there's something special about trained crisis response dogs that brings calm and healing. We'll talk with the founder of the Tri-State Canine Response Team.
2: We give them the experience to go out and then their gifts start to shine.
1: For our newsmaker this week, Sharadee Howard sits down with a mother who talks about the misconceptions of children with autism.
3: If you just look at, at the disability, then you're missing out on knowing an amazing person.
1: Antoinette Lee has our changemaker this week, empowering Black mothers in the area.
3: When my daughter decides
4: to have children, I hope the disparity rate has decreased.
1: It's all coming up on Bridging Philly.
0: 30 Seconds to Second Chances brought to you by the Gift of Life donor program. Abdul Karim Salahuddin was near death in 2014. I needed to get a liver transplant. At the same time, Carol McLeod's son had a seizure.
3: Ryan was declared brain dead.
0: Carol, an Irish Catholic, decided to donate his organs.
3: That's something that he would have wanted.
0: Kareem, a devout Muslim, received Ryan's liver. God orchestrated this thing for us to come together. Now, their family.
3: He's my older adopted son.
0: Register as an organ donor at donors1.org and help save lives.
1: Welcome to Bridging Philly. When tragedy strikes, people are left to deal with the grief. Of course, therapy is necessary and much needed, but there are different forms of therapy. For many, the simple, loving, nuzzle, or kind response of a dog trained to comfort and calm does the trick. Joining us today is Janice Campbell. She is founder and president of the Tri-State Canine Response Team based in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Their mission is to comfort, support, and enhance the quality of life of those who are suffering from a personal condition or community crisis, utilizing the human-canine bond and its power to heal. Welcome, Janice.
2: Thank you, and thank you for inviting me on today.
1: Now, I know a lot of us are very familiar or somewhat familiar with therapy dogs in general, but we're not quite familiar with exactly how they're trained. And your dogs, they're not the average therapy dogs per se, as they are trained to help in a variety of situations. Let's talk about that, Janice. What are the differences between therapy dogs, emotional support dogs, and, and service dogs, if they are differences?
2: Well, on Tri-State Canine Response Team, we have two different divisions of dogs. We start out with our dogs that are therapy dogs. Therapy dogs go through a national certification. So a therapy dog is a dog who will be able to show that it's passed a temperament test, that it has the ability to be hugged, hold its ears, feet, teeth, tail, and it works in predictable environments. So a therapy dog may go to a library, to a reading program, to a hospital, to a facility where the environment is predictable, where they're working. A crisis dog or a dog trained at a higher level will be a dog that has to have advanced training, being able to work in unpredictable environments. We never know when we're asked to go out to a scene, what environment we will be working in, what we're going to be coming upon. It could be the dogs need to be used to traveling on trains; they fly on the airplanes. Are crisis response dogs? They work where there's people that are emotionally distraught, could be at cross memorials, like in Las Vegas, where there were 59 crosses set up for each of the individuals, you know, who had been shot during the concert, grieving. We work a lot with first responders who are out um, on the scene with the different things that they see. So our dogs are trained to work in highly charged, unpredictable environments, along with the handler. The handler also, you know, we have to be prepared to be able to work with that community, resiliency, and recovery when we come up upon a scene. So that's a team that's actually being trained together to help when different things happen.
1: Can you talk about that training since you mentioned that? I was interested in how the dogs are trained. They're so well trained to do what they do. Uh, And then since you brought up the handlers, I guess the handlers have to be trained in order to know how to handle the
2: dogs. We do. We do. With um, working on to up to a higher level with the crisis, I'll give an example. I have an 11 week old puppy. Okay. I just got her. Her name's Eliana. Mm -hmm. And we are working today to train her to be a crisis response dog. So she is working with all different floor surfaces, different forms of transportation, going out to puppy classes, working with people that look different, people that um, could be Sight, sound, smell different. The Mm -hmm. dog has to be really acceptable, almost like what a seeing eye dog or a working service dog would be, being able to adapt to anything that we're kind of almost throwing at them. It doesn't mean your dog has to be from a puppy to start. A lot of our team members have dogs that they've rescued from shelters. And some of those dogs have a beautiful gift of they were saved. And it's almost like they know that they then have something to give back to the community and to save and help other people. So it doesn't always have to be from a puppy. Um, it's a, a gift that our dogs kind of give us that we can give back to people in the community. And our group is all volunteer. Wow. So we, have, we have 61 volunteers who give of their time and of their dogs were not compensated or paid while well, the dogs are paid with pets and love and biscuits. Um, so they're compensated that way. But we are an all-volunteer group um, supporting the community.
1: Are all dogs fit to do this kind of work? What are the more ideal dogs for this type of work?
2: There is not an ideal dog or an ideal breed. We at Tri-State do not breed differentiate or discriminate. If the dog has the right temperament and it has the obedience and it can work with our team, any dog, any breed, any size can do the work. We deployed to uh, California to the wildfires with a three pound little dog. Hmm. We have dogs that are 160 pounds. So people have been childhood with someone will say to me, I have a golden. Oh, my God, I grew up with a golden. Some people relate to a Bichon because they've had them. Everyone relates to the dogs differently. Some people are afraid of big dogs. So we have a full mix of dogs. The consistent thing that you will see with our group is that the dog has the right temperament and the handler has the compassion and empathy to want to give back and help in the community.
1: Wow. As far as helping in the community, what are some of the different areas where you have uh, been able to bring the dogs and have them assist and help within this area of the community?
2: Well, we have Tri-State, which is Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Mm -hmm. We have um, teams in Maryland, Florida, Louisiana, and we belong to the New Jersey Crisis Intervention Team, CIT New Jersey. We are their ambassador dogs, which means we cover all 21 counties in New Jersey, but it also means that we belong to CIT International, and that's how when something happens in different states and communities that people will reach out to us to be able to come and support when things happen we never self-deploy we always as an organization it's most important as responding as a first responder that we just don't show up at a scene Mm -hmm. we don't hear that um, you know there was a shooting in new york and we just get in our car and drive up and show up and say we want to help we really have to have a formal invite or someone who invites us to come out to help in the community, because when things happen, it's very disruptive to the organizers to just have everybody showing up on the scene to want to help. So we would go upon an invite to help.
1: Let's talk about some of the more smaller community minded things that the uh, organization gets into when it comes to, say, schools.
2: I'm so glad you asked because 99.9% of our work is done here in the community. A small percentage is going out to the mass shootings or wildfires or casualties, but they kind of get a lot of attention because they're bigger events. But our work is really done here with our little boots and paws on the ground Mm -hmm. going into, um, as you mentioned, schools. We have over 40 schools that we work with. So we have now a special program we're working with, Burlington County Special Services, with their special needs children and the autistic children, where we're going in and doing pilot programs where the, with the school working with the dogs and the handlers actually getting measurable outcomes with uh, therapeutic interventions that we're working with the dogs. Mm. We also go out, which is very, very fun for um, de-stress days during medical exams or college exams. We all wish we had this when we were in college. <laughs> we, we never had dogs coming in for us. Um, Right. And we also go into wellness days. Uh, We also are a part of the Traumatic Loss Coalition, which specifically works with schools. So a lot of our time working with schools through the Traumatic Loss Coalition will be going in if there's a death of a teacher.
1: Oh, I see.
2: And the next morning, you know, the kindergarten class will be there and they have to find out that their teacher passed away. The staff is distraught. So we go in as part of the Traumatic Loss Coalition to give support to the students that day. We go in with our dogs. We read stories. We let them um, debrief with the dogs, spending time with them. Also, too much, unfortunately, and too often, we're going in for school suicides.
1: Wow. Where
2: there's a student who died by suicide. And the next day, we set up um, a canine comfort room. We have counselors that are there from the Traumatic Loss Coalition, and we work with the counselors and the students as they process and remember their uh, friend for the loss that they've had.
1: It is so sad. It is so sad. And, you know, I was reading on your website that, I mean, of course you respond to crisis. Of course you respond after something has happened or someone is getting treatment but when it comes to suicide, and I think this was interesting, you were able to actually go in and help before something happens. Can you talk about that?
2: Actually, this is something that we do. We go in postvention after things happen. And one of our team members, her name is Pam Bold, and She is our school liaison's son, went to Rowan University. And in December of 2019, they had three students die by suicide who jumped off the third car garage and died and she asked her son what would you do if someone said to you they were thinking about taking their life and his answer was I would tell him not to do it and being a mom and a principal she says that's not enough that's not enough you have we have to know more we have to be able to do more so Pam came you know to me and said, you know, besides do, going in after these things happen, can we do something on the education part before it happens? So I said, well, you know, that's really not our mission, but, you know, our mission is to help the community. So we went to the board and the board approved to get three of us certified as suicide education instructors where we can go into schools. We do a lot of um, police officers training in suicide education and certifying them almost like CPR is to save a life. We're not a doctor. Mm -hmm. We're not a nurse, but we can save a life. QPR is like CPR question, persuade, refer. We're not a therapist. We're not a psychologist, but we're a person who can save a life. And how do we do that? We ask the question, you know, it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard question to ask. How do you ask the question? How do you convince or persuade that person to get help and then refer them? So this is a course and we can certify people to do this. And everybody just like CPR, we should all have this education. So we have paid for a course ourselves, and Mm -hmm. we pay for the materials. Recently, we just did uh, March Madness. We did a group of basketball players. Okay. And they're like, our coaches need this. Our coaches (laughs) are like our parents. They would benefit from the training. So We have gotten into some training when we feel it can be preventive and helpful in the community. And we do it with our dogs, which makes it easier and fun.
1: Right, right.
2: Janice, what
1: is it about these dogs that just seem to know that something is going on with a person. They're so intelligent. And, and I'm sure every dog owner can, you know, tell a story about, you know, how my dog knew when something was going on. I know when I had my dog, my dog knew when I was pregnant. <laughs> I was like, why right. is this dog licking my stomach? This is crazy. Knew before I did. They're so intelligent. And they know when something is going on. And they bring so much comfort. What? Tell me about that, that bond between human and, and, and animals and that comfort factor.
2: A lot of times when you first start with your therapy dog, you're starting out new, your dog is going out with you and they're working side by side. And they're like, "Okay, we're going out. We're putting on our vests. We're doing something along the line. You'll start to see the more that you work your dog, that your dog is understanding what their job is. Mm. They're no longer looking at you a lot. They're looking at the person they're realizing and they're starting to search out things. And it'll be amazing to you. I'll share one little story. I have hundreds, but I'll share one. I'd like to hear Um, lots of them. Go ahead. (laughs) My one dog, Cece, who passed in June, we were out at Las Vegas for the mass shooting. And we went to a memorial garden that day. And as she circled around the garden, she kept coming back to this one lady. And she wouldn't leave her. She just walked up to her and put her head on her shoulder. And I was like apologizing to her. I said, I am so sorry. My dog just wants to be with you. And she said, that's okay. She said, I'm here by myself. She said, I flew in to pick up my husband's cremains. Mm. She unzipped her bag and she pulled out an urn that was her husband's cremains. She came to the garden that day because she wanted to go up to the board and take, his name was Brian, take Brian's picture down. She wanted to write a goodbye note to him and she couldn't bring herself to go up to the memorial garden And take the picture down. And she asked if we would go up with her. And I said, absolutely. Now, my dog knew this much before I knew it.
1: Wow. Wow. And she
2: was able to comfort her. And she's my dog Cece sat there with her as she wrote the letter and then went up to the wall and put it up. And Cece stayed with her until she decided she was going to leave and get back in her car. I probably could not have pried my dog away. Wow. And as handlers, we start to learn that our dogs will start to guide us and take us to those people that they need the most. I can walk through a crowd at the cross memorial. She'll pass maybe 30 people and she'll stop. And that person's bothering lip will be quivering. And I know that that's where she wants to be. Wow. And I just quietly stand there for support. And then they'll start sharing and petting her.
1: C.C., you know, and I'm sad that uh, C.C. passed away, must have been a very special dog because I did read about the story uh, of C.C. in Boulder, Colorado. Now, that one struck me. I'll let you tell the story of the the man that C.C. encountered that no one even knew that that man was where he was.
2: We were at the Cross uh, Memorial in front of the uh, supermarket where the shooting took place. And we were going up and down the line and Cece kept circling and coming back to this gentleman. His name was Jeremy. And as we were there and Cece was, you know, cuddling in with him and he's scratching her and talking to her and kissing her. He looked up at me and he said, this is so helpful to me. He said, I made the 911 call from the parking lot. That's the
1: one. Yeah. I
2: saw the first person shop. and I was, I was not surprised at that point because I'd been Cece's handler and knew her gift. So she was able to pick. People out. But two days later, we went to the dispatch center. We walked in to support the first responders that had taken the calls and were working. And there was a long hallway, and everybody was over in the dispatch room. And Cece wanted to go down this hallway. And I'm like, she must smell food down there because the door was (laughs) open and the light was on, but nobody was in the room. And she kept going back and going back. And then eventually, someone walked out of that room and he stood there. And he started petting Cece Mm -hmm. and she was snuggled into him like she knew him for 20 years. She would not leave him his side. And he was the gentleman who took the 911 Mm -hmm. call Mm -hmm. that Jeremy had placed that day. These are gifts that aren't just Cece has, but many, many dogs. Abigail's one dimension on our team who works with autistic children and people with PTSD so we can be in a group and she will pick somebody else who's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's, you know, it's a gift. The dogs have, we can't train that part to right. them. You know, we train the obedience, we give them the experience to go out. We work them often and then their, their gifts start to shine. And it truly to me is a blessing to be on the other end of the leash. When our dogs do this, I really can't take the credit. Um, we do sometimes, But it's really, they're doing the work.
1: Wow. Wow. These are some great stories. And that that one really struck me. Um, You know, how did he even know, how did Cece even know that that man was in that room, you know, just overcome and grief-stricken with with the situation? That he knew that... I don't... He may have had a sandwich, too.
2: I don't know. but (laughs) (laughs) But she certainly... She certainly
1: knew. And also, I wanted to talk with you about, I know you mentioned that um, you guys do work with the military and also with first responders. What kind of work do do you do with the military and first responders with the dogs?
2: Well, actually, when we started Tri-State in 2015, we started it with five dogs and we're now to 61. Our goal was to support the community, was to support our first responders, our police fire, EMT, and dispatch, people who go out during the crisis and are taking care of everyone else, but really aren't taking care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And six years ago, mindfulness and taking care of our first responders really wasn't talked about. You know, it really, their hero was to put their needs second and go take care of everybody first, which now we learn cannot be that way. So we really, in 2015, we're kind of on the foresight of making sure that we recognized this and would take care of them. So we will go out to support the firemen when we were asked to go to Orlando for the Pulse nightclub shooting. Mm-hmm. The firemen were the first people who went into the club. They were there, you know, when um, just tragic things were happening.
1: Pause for a second, because I, I I think people have to get that picture. You have to understand what first responders deal with. They're the first on the scene. You're talking about a mass shooting in a club. They open the door, they walk in, and it's something that probably most of us would not be able to handle. Now, they're trained, so to speak, to handle these things, but they're human. And so they, of course, they they take this home with them. They're overcome with grief right on the scene. So they really do need the support.
2: They do, and sometimes they're not able to talk about it. But when they wrap their arms around a dog, and they become human for a moment, and their tears are coming down their cheeks, you really can tell that this is a time for them to start to, to heal, right? To, to, to get out of the mindset of what they really were just happening. So we also work with um, critical incident debriefings for police departments. If we're invited to come in, we'll work with dispatch centers where they're taking the calls, all of the people who are out there on the front line. Of course. But a lot is going around of self-care and mindfulness and and taking care of first responders, which I'm so happy that mental health is, is catching up. You know, it's okay not yes, to be okay. Exactly. You know, we're giving that message out there and where do you find help? And, you know, working with our veterans and cop-to-cop and peer-to-peer where people can get help and support. And still remain on the force, mm-hmm. where if they ask for help that, you know, their weapons aren't going to be taken from them and they can't continue their job. So that that's also important with also we're doing a wall coming up with stamping out stigma with the dogs to stamping out the stigma of asking for help right. and needing help when things happen so.
1: Now, I know the dogs like to visit uh, patients in the hospital and they probably help out with the the staff as well because they're super overworked and stressed as well. What are those visits like and how are the dogs received when they walk in?
2: How they're received is we really sometimes don't get past the first door where the nurses and everybody (laughs) are waiting for us to come in because they know what days we're coming in with the dogs, which for us... It's fine. It's They are needed just, to, you know, coming off of the pandemic and the work that the nurses and the staff have been through and, you know, supports maybe not being in the hospital, having the dogs there for them is, to me, is just as important as seeing the patients. I may go as far to say it's 75-25. 75% of our time may be spent with staff and 25% with patients. Oh, on some wow. visits. An example is we go to Penn Medicine to the infusion center. And um, a lot of their, on Thursdays, a lot of their people who are coming in for their chemo will come in on Thursdays and schedule it because they know the dogs are there on this Thursdays.
1: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I know you have something in the schools where you have something called a Barking Buddies program. What is that?
2: Barking Buddies program is actually a reading program we have through the Cherry Hill Library where children will come in and they read to the dogs. They get one-on-one time with the dog at the library. So we started that in 2015. During COVID, just like with everything else, we couldn't do a lot of things in person. So we started to do it by Zoom, where it was set up where children could still get one-on-one with a dog and read to the dog Mm. and kept that up to where we're now post-COVID, where we're going back into the library But that was really something we learned during the pandemic that through Zooming, we're able to possibly reach children that aren't able to come in or aren't physically able to get there. So we've been able to broaden the services. During COVID, we have one of our team members who lives in Florida, took one of our schools from Camden to a a dolphin park. And they got to meet the dolphins and the turtles. And through the Zoom, they actually took a trip through the Marine. So we've been able to keep things going. And we've actually been busier during the pandemic than we were before.
1: Wow. I was going to ask you if the pandemic impacted the way you guys, uh, uh, you know, handle these different scenes and, and and help different people. So you're able to work around that.
2: Well, actually, we still worked in person very carefully supporting um our doctors and our nurses and the coroner's office. That was one of our visits, probably not everybody's most favorite visit to go to, but most needed because they have been busy processing everyone from the beginning of the pandemic to kind of the end of the pandemic. And we would think it would slow down, but then they've had a lot of suicides after COVID. That was an an uptick and, They've had a lot of fentanyl deaths on top of COVID. So they have been working straight through without vacations. The only time they've been taking off is to go to a medical appointment if they need to. And they are the most overworked and probably most forgotten group of what I call heroes, really, Mm -hmm. for this.
1: How long have you been doing this, Janice? And how did you get into uh, this line of work? It's so interesting and fulfilling, obviously.
2: Well, it was a combination. I've always loved animals. I've always loved helping people. I worked for the Mental Health Association in Southwestern of New Jersey for 20 years. And I also was a tester and a certifier for Alliance of Therapy Dogs, which is a national organization to certify your dogs. If you're interested in getting your dog certified, you can help with that. I was seeing and working, doing um, community outreach with boarding home residents. The difference the dogs could make for the people who were shut-ins that were living in homes, and it made such a difference to them that we started using them as a pilot kind of program. We started then working with the mental health unit, lockdown unit for people who were inpatient, voluntary and involuntary, and I saw the difference that the dogs made. So I went to our executive director and said, "You know, this is a program. This we have to do this." and kind of like with social service jobs if you really don't have a grant or you don't have the funding they really can't start it unless they have that first so i think on the third time i asked she you know said this is something i need to do on my own if i wanted to do it so i borrowed some money from my retirement just a little bit <laughs> and you know got started as a 501c3 got our insurance got everything going started with 5 dogs and we have not missed a day a beat Uh, We're over 187,000 individuals that we've served. That's unduplicated people since we started. We've been busy. Our goal was to, you know, give back to our community and, you know, have this wonderful gift of our dogs and and share it. And also, we found amongst the people that we're working with, our 61 group of people, we have become a family and supporting each other, too, with different things that happen, you know, in our lives. So... It's just a gift and a blessing back in many, many ways.
1: And you said you're all volunteer and that's awesome with the 60 plus volunteers that you have, where you,
2: are you in need
1: of more volunteers at this point?
2: We are in need of more dogs and volunteers. We actually have people volunteering who don't have dogs, um, which, you know, we, we still have those business things that we have to take care of. Like we don't have anybody in marketing, which is, you know, a hole for us right now because we're so busy doing the day-to-day work with our dogs and training dogs and bringing new people on that sometimes the what we're doing now and the marketing part is something we just we don't have time to put yeah. toward that but it's it's much necessary because with that um would be where we could maybe then get supporters in financially helping you know helping us with our goals of what we need to do with adding teams and deploying out
1: Okay, well, it's great work that you do. Where can people go to find out information? And if
2: we have a website, www. state statek 9 response They can also reach us through Facebook. And you know, we do have some groups. Subaru has recognized since two thousand and fifteen the work that we've done, mm-hmm. and they have been a supporter. You know, of the work that we do, and so we, you know, would invite any other business who would like to join Subaru in supporting us and. And working in the community that we could certainly appreciate their help.
1: Well, that's wonderful. More corporate sponsorships, more volunteers, because you guys do uh, awesome work and I I think it's wonderful. And it's unfortunate some of the things that you do have to go to, but it's great that the dogs are there and they're able to help and they're able to help people heal, which is most most important. We've been talking with Janice Campbell, founder and president of the Tri-State Canine Response Team based in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Janice, thank you so much
0: 30 seconds to second chances brought to you by the gift of life donor program. Joe Pratt survived two tours in Vietnam but was barely living after a diagnosis of COPD. My quality of life was about zero. A lung transplant offered a shot at recovery. I didn't have any second thoughts. After six weeks on the wait list, he got the gift of life. A new day. Nearly two dozen people a day die waiting for a second chance, and many are people of color. There's enough of us out here who are donors to eliminate people dying. Register as an organ donor at donors1.org and help save lives.
1: Welcome back to Bridging Philly. April is World Autism Month. And Day Howard sits down with a mother who's dispelling the myths about children with autism.
6: In recognition of National Autism Awareness Month, we have a special newsmaker. In fact, we have two. KYW's own Susan Schilling and her daughter, Jessica. Now, Sue's not just a local broadcasting legend in both sports and now traffic, but she's also a voice and advocate for her own special someone, her 12-year-old daughter, Jessica. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Susan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, there are a lot of misconceptions about autism, and you're sharing your story not only to shed some light on the matter, but you say you want people to see your daughter and kids like her rather than just the autism.
3: Yes, uh, my daughter, Jessica, she's 12. She'll be 13 on May 1st. Now, Jessica is autistic, but she's also nonverbal.
6: But you say that doesn't stop her from enjoying life, right?
3: Uh, She has autism. She has several uh, disabilities. She's nonverbal and uh, has a lot of sensory issues. So autism has touched us in many ways. But when you look at everything that Jessica has to offer, the diagnosis comes last because I look at her as a, as a person and as an amazing girl. Uh, she's incredibly smart. She's funny. She's caring and she's sweet. And uh, she there's so much that she offers. And she needs a lot of, of help and support on, on a daily basis. But when you look at her and everything that she has to offer. Sometimes you want to look at her as a person and not just the disability. And she adds so much to the world and certainly to my world. Now you say Jessica's days and your days are really
6: filled with a lot of therapy, a lot of work really trying to get her to a good place. And you say she takes it all in good stride.
3: We have a lot of um, therapies that she goes through on a daily basis. She goes to school, uh, special needs school, where they provide uh, the therapies that she needs. Uh, she has a one on one aid, and she also gets in home therapy uh, an ABA, a behavior. It's called a BCBA, board certified behavior analyst. She comes to the house and she's a huge help and she gets therapies during the week. So she endures a lot and she also does a lot of things that um, she finds enjoyment in. She's a horseback rider. She does uh, horseback riding for therapy. She plays baseball. Uh, She plays soccer and she loves to dance. She loves music. And she just has a lot of interest. She's always happy and smiling and uh, laughing, and she, she manages to enjoy life. She goes through a lot that she endures on a regular basis. She also finds a way to always uh, enjoy life and is a really loving girl.
6: And like any other 12-year-old, she's just a kid.
3: Yes, and that's the thing. She She's a kid, and, and she likes and she wants what, what everyone else wants. It's just that she goes about it in a different way because of her disabilities, she doesn't have the ability to verbalize, so she uses her, uh, her iPad. She has a, a speaking device. It's called the uh, Touch Chat app that she uses, and that's how she, she speaks. Uh, she communicates through her app, so she finds a way to communicate her needs, which is amazing. She's taught me uh, so many things. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm her mom, and I'm supposed to help her navigate and, and teach her, but she's actually taught me uh, so many things.
6: So as you say, this is kind of learning as you go. Everything's up in the air. You're learning this together. But what you've also learned is that there's not a lot of people out there who know much about autism.
3: Right. See her as a person, if you just look at the disability, you miss out on everything else that she has to offer. And she offers so much. You know, it's just so caring um, and loving. And she's very, very intelligent. So if you just look at, at the disability, then you're missing out on knowing an amazing person. And she's you know, just because she cannot communicate verbally does not mean that she can't express her needs or her opinions. And she gets that opportunity thankfully to you know, with modern technology and she endures a lot on a regular basis, you know, at school she has to go she loves her school, they do a great job. She has to go through a lot of of therapies on a daily basis. She pushes through everything and it's a lesson that we can learn. You know, sometimes society sees people with disabilities as the weak ones, but it's actually the opposite because they're the ones who have shown the ability to endure and survive and we should be learning from them.
6: Not many people understand that when you have to do things differently than the mainstream, you wind up exercising other muscles and finding other beautiful aspects of who you are and what you are. And you say your daughter has done just that.
3: A lot of the, the way she shows it is just um, the way she hugs the way she knows the routine, she'll get the tables out, the dishes out to set the table. Uh, just how she, she greets, how she comes off the bus with a big hug, uh, how she makes her teachers laugh, uh, how she just everything she does, she manages to put a smile on her face. The world would be a lot more, my world anyway, would be a lot more empty without her. Not only does she sound like a little firecracker, but she
6: sounds like she has a lot of compassion.
3: She really does. She's got a lot of love in her heart. Either she's been known if she sees someone that looks sad or she'll come up and she'll comfort them. You know, she's got a lot of love love in her heart for sure. That's a good way to put it. So technology
6: in her iPad in particular has really helped her become a part of the world around her.
3: It is because she's able to communicate her needs uh, with her speaking device, you know, because it can be frustrating, uh, but with a device you're able to communicate when you're hungry. Uh, and just your, your basic needs, how you're feeling every day at school. It's in the beginning of the day, they have what's called morning meeting. And um, they t- it's how you're feeling. So she's able to express h- how she's feeling. She lets you know if she's hungry. She lets you know um, whatever's on her mind with the speaking device, which has been a great thing.
6: And you say like most Philadelphians, Jessica really loves her sports.
3: She loves her Phillies, and and, um, she loves the Eagles. You talk about how sports has that ability to bring people together. One of my fondest memories of the moment I wish I could freeze in time. We were... It was the morning after they won the Super Bowl, and we were waiting for the bus, and the bus was late. So I joked with Jessica, and I told her that the bus driver probably wasn't coming because he was up late watching the Super Bowl. And that's when she screamed out, clear as day, they won the game. And I was just blown away in that moment because basically she just, you know, she says mommy, and sometimes she vocalizes a lot but doesn't really speak phrases and words. And the fact that she said that and it was clear... It just showed that what sports can do is it, it just brought her into f- feeling like any other kid. And even without the verbalization, just the fact of how she was cheering and rooting like anyone else and was brought together by that to, to feel like any, any other child in that moment. Sports has that ability to do that.
6: And you guys are finding ways to connect her to her community, her Jewish community. She has
3: a special event coming up. Can you tell us about it? Yes. And in, in our synagogue, and I know other synagogues have, have done different things with nonverbal children to make this possible. And for our synagogue, to best of my knowledge, this is the first, the first nonverbal bat mitzvah. And Jessica's going to do that. When she turns 13, she's getting her bat mitzvah. And through the use of technology, she's going to be able to, to do this. And Thankful for a very cooperative, amazing rabbi, her tutor for working with her so well, and also the therapist for for being a big part of it. It's been a a big effort by a lot of people, and it's something very special to Jessica. And it's interesting. We were just talking about the Eagles with the Super Bowl. You know, when I think of it, that's the analogy. That's the comparison that that comes to mind because when they won and she verbalized it and she was rooting, she was rooting like any any other kid. You know, for that moment, there was no... I'm different or I have these needs. She was rooting. And then with the bat mitzvah, I kind of feel, even though she's doing it in a completely different way, the fact is that she's been to other bat mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs. So she's seen cousins get bar and bat mitzvah. She's seen family friends. And she knows that when you're 13 in the Jewish community, this is what you do. And the fact that she's so excited that she's turning 13 and she's getting her bat mitzvah, you could just see it in her eyes and the joy in her face that she feels like she's part of something, that she's having this opportunity to do this. Also the girls that recorded the prayers for her, they're making it possible, their kindness. There was, I believe four girls and she's playing them off her iPad and all the effort that's gone into it and all the hard work that Jessica's put into this has just been amazing. I'm just so proud of her. She's never complains when it's time for the bat mitzvah lessons. She never resists it. She's always excited. There's always pure joy on her face.
6: Now, what's your message to people out there who maybe don't know, and you just want them to see Jessica for who she is?
3: You want to give them a chance. You know, they are communicating differently. You probably have to communicate differently, too. So you want to make an effort to, to come into their world and to learn a little bit more about them and just give them a chance. And, and don't just dismiss someone uh, because they might do things a little bit differently. I mean, People that have special needs, they can get jobs, they can join the workforce. I remember when we were on remote learning, we were reading uh, a story with her class about, it was called May Amongst the Stars, about the girl who wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, but the teacher told her to do something else. It turns out it was based on a true story. She did become an astronaut. I could tell Jessica was really paying attention to the story. I asked her what she if she had a dream, and she typed in. She took my hands to the letter and typed in radio broadcaster, and to me, I was just, I was blown away by that. I was. It was an emotional moment. The fact that she thought that, but she gives to her. It didn't even even we could tell it wasn't even a thought that being nonverbal like so what that's if that's what i want to do she they all give the weather report every day on remote they do it in class but i got to see it during remote learning and she would give the weather report every day with her with her speaking device you know some of the kids in the class are verbal were verbal some use their speaking device every, they have different modes of, of communication and the fact that she took my hands to type that in that just blew me away but it shows that she doesn't see limits
6: so you're pretty much just saying, hey, ditch the limitations because you're going to miss out on a really cool kid.
3: Right. You're missing out on a great girl if, if you're not giving her a chance because she does have so much to offer.
6: Thank you so much for being here at Bridging Philly. Thank
3: you, Shara, for having me.
6: I'm Shara Howard, and that's the Newsmaker of the Week. If you'd like to reach out to me, if you have a story to tell, email me at shara.howard at kywnewsradio.com.
0: 30 Seconds to Second Chances, brought to you by the Gift of Life donor program. In 2013, Timmy Nelson went in for back surgery and got the shock of his life. found out that my kidneys were failing. had no idea, no symptoms. A year later, he was on dialysis and in need of a transplant. Probably the most frightening thing I've ever gone through. He focused on his health and got a new kidney three years later on his 60th birthday. Every day is a holiday, and I have a new gift of life. Register as an organ donor at donors1.org and help save lives. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org
4: the philly rising changemaker of the week presented by deborah advanced behavioral health
0: is antoinette
5: lee here with this week's philly rising changemaker this month we've been talking about black maternal health week and the disparities that exist when it comes to black pregnancy related deaths a delaware woman and mother is bringing those conversations and policies to the forefront this week's philly rising changemaker is shanae darby um, first of all, thank you so much uh, for joining us on Bridging Philly this week.
4: Yes. No, thank you for having me. I'm excited to always talk about Black maternal health care and it's Black maternal health care week. So we've been celebrating and having events um, here in Delaware throughout the whole week. I can't wait to get into it. Uh, but you actually wear a lot of hats, right? So tell us about
5: some of those many hats that you wear.
4: Yes. Um, so I am a mother. I'm a mother of three girls. I have a 14-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a five-year-old. I'm also the second district city council person in my city of Wilmington. I'm also a mental health therapist. Um, I run a for-profit community program called Maat Community Spaces, where I have a garden and a small community center in my neighborhood. And I run Black Mothers in Power, which is the nonprofit part of what I do in regards to Black maternal health care. I have a background with community organizing, doing advocacy work throughout the state of Delaware.
5: So let's talk about Black Mothers in Power. How did you get started with this organization?
4: So, as I was coming out of um, trying to find me again, so when I say that I have a seven year old and a five year old, they're 18 months apart pretty much had one pregnancy, it felt like. And um, after being a mom battling with postpartum depression about two, three years after having them, I'm like, I need to find me. What do I love to do? So that's when I found out about the program Network Delaware or the the um, nonprofit and I joined, and I took every, sh- every single leadership development course you can think of. I learned how to community organize. They hired me as a community organizer, and one of the questions they asked was like, "If you can focus on one issue, if you can create a campaign around any issue that you are passionate about, what would it be?" And right off the bat, I already knew that I wanted to do black maternal health care. Um, one of the things that popped up probably around like 2015, 2016 are Facebook groups. And I remember being in these groups. It was like Black women who breastfeed, Black women who cloth diaper. And I was like learning this information from these amazing Black women from across the country about Black maternal rates, statistics, disparities. And I wasn't really hearing the conversation here in Delaware. So I wanted to figure out what that conversation if it was happening, where is it happening, who's having these conversations, what are we doing about it and then how can I can conc- How can I contribute to that conversation and um, pushing the needle forward with trying to decrease the disparities that exist in black maternal health care? So that's where our beginning started was at Network Delaware.
5: You know, there hasn't always been this movement of transparency and openness when it comes to, um, like you said, black women sharing birthing stories, black women breastfeeding. And now I think social media has made that more um, abundant and it's made things a lot easier for us where we can share that wealth of information, but what disparities are there that exist that have made this, um, you know, harder and sort of non-existent in the past?
4: I think our, like this, our age group, I think like I'm 33 and even the next group, I guess, um, other, I guess they're Gen Z's. We're more about mental health, talking about our experiences. Like it's, we're just a totally different group of how we wanna go about our experience of being. And I think that contributes to the conversation. So when we look at black maternal healthcare and we see the disparities that exist, like black women and black babies are two to three times more likely to die, right? So like, even just like that, like the mortality rate within it, that can scare some people, right? Um, But it's really there to empower you. But that when you even look at the data even deeper, most people will say, oh, it must be something genetic, or it must be something that Black women are doing. But when you look at the data, CDC, you look at the research from different different, um, people who are in this movement, you will see that it doesn't matter your social economic status, it doesn't matter any factors you throw in there. If you are Black, if you are Serena Williams, if you are Beyonce, your baby is still two to three times more likely to die and you're still faced with the same disparities, um, no matter, you can't master's degree your way out of this, right? So it's really important that you. I point that out when I talk about Black maternal health care, because a lot of times we like to pin this on... Um, low social economic status woman or poor people who are low income and poor when this is a black woman's issues across all social economic status across all educational attainment so when you look at that for specifically for black women for black babies it's pretty um <laughs> it's intriguing it is it, it makes you angry it makes you want to do something about it. All of those feelings mixed into one. But specifically for this conversation, I think that um, today we're starting to realize and say, hey, we want to speak up about these things. And when we talk even about breastfeeding for black women, we're least likely to breastfeed. Right. And we know all of the benefits about breast milk for mom, for baby, um, for long term, for baby's development, and, and you know, as they become um, children. The benefits of just being breastfed, and Black women are were are not engaging in that, and that's something else that we're trying to increase. When you understand his historically that Black women were cut off from breastfeeding, they were told that they were not allowed to breastfeed their babies during the period of enslavement, specifically in America. So. Breastfeeding is usually knowledge that's passed down generational, right? So it's usually mom to daughter or to do, to their granddaughter. That knowledge was cut off. And then you have the introduction of like formula um, and all of these other things that happened during that time period to get us to where we are today. So a decision that was made hundreds of years ago is impacting me today. It's impacting every single Black family today. It's impacting all of our communities today about a decision that was made about breastfeeding hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, because of people's wanting to control Black bodies. Um, so I just think it's really interesting when you, um, like how how much the history impacts your today. And a lot of times people think, oh, it's history, it happened. But the impact that it has on Black women today, specifically for maternal care, we see it and it's it's in the data.
5: And tell us about how Black Mothers in Power has been bridging that gap.
4: Yeah, so we have three focus areas. So our first focus area is community awareness. So we know that um, specifically, our first um, focus is Black women. We know that Black women of all social economic statuses, you could be a Black woman lawyer or a Black woman who who gets benefits at social services. There are some Black women who just don't know this information, right? So how do we make sure that we are expanding out this knowledge to Black women? How do we make those connections through community awareness? So that's um, really like having programs with like Dappy, which is... Um, a program here, a school for pregnant teenagers, um, uh, for pregnant young girls. So we go and do workshops with them once a month to talk about Black maternal health care and maternal care and being a mom and parenting and financial. We we go off a little bit off of maternal care, but they're all really connected at the end of the day. Um, but we really we go there once a month to work with um pregnant te- teen girls or teen girls who are who are moms, and um, so really just expanding that knowledge through. Black girls and Black women is like so key to what we're doing. And another piece that is so important to us. Um, so like our community awareness is like one of the key things that we do like this week is Black Maternal Healthcare Week. So we're having an event this week on Thursday as um, a workshop on how to navigate Um, the healthcare system here in Delaware. So we're going to have different workshops just to give people the information that they need about Delaware, about our healthcare system and how to advocate for themselves and different ways they can go about doing that. Our second pillar is our community programming. So we have a doula training program. We just graduated 10 Black women who will now be doulas servicing other moms, hopefully throughout the state of Delaware, right? So one of the key things we want to do is increase the number of doulas in the state of Delaware. Doulas are non-medical professionals who provide support to birthing people before, during, and after pregnancy. Um, they, The research has shown, the data has shown that it has helped to decrease um, some of the disparities that we talk about. So like breastfeeding, they help to increase the number or duration that individual breastfeeds, right? They were able to decrease the number of C-sections and the number of babies who are premature going to NICU. So doulas being there with birthing people to advocate has been beneficial. And we want to see that happen here in Delaware. It is not the answer, but it is a part of um, ways that we can reduce the disparities and increase um, breastfeeding in our state. So we are happy to have 10 new Black doulas on the street, um, servicing um, Black community, servicing anyone who wants a doula in our state. And then we also have our postpartum program. So our postpartum program is focused on working with Black women in the postpartum stage. So from um, a new, fresh newborn all the way up into the age of one. You can join the program and for about six to eight weeks, you meet with another group of moms to go over um, like information and resources about being a mom, getting connections into the community on resources that are available in the community, and also developing like a sister sister circle. We also provide each one of the participants with a postpartum doula. Uh, so if they did not have a doula while they were pregnant, you can get one while you're in postpartum. So there are different types of doulas. Um, we also have a midwife scholarship. So we um, want to promote more Black um, individuals to go to midwifery school. In the state of Delaware, I think we have like under five people who are some sort of doula, um, some sort of midwife. So we are. We want to increase those numbers, Uh, and we also have our COVID relief fund program, which is uh, focused on providing temporary assistance to families. So that's like giving out laundry cards, bus cards, diapers, and wipes. And then our last pillar, or our last focus area, is community organizing. So there's like two prongs to this, right? So the community organizing one prong of it is like very like grassroots. Like, how do we make sure that We are engaging Black women into this movement from all different walks of life, right? So intersectionality is so key. So what is it like to be a Black woman who is a lesbian and pregnant? Or a Black woman who is trans and pregnant? Or a Black woman who is homeless and pregnant? A Black woman who is incarcerated and pregnant? Like, how do we look at maternal care from those lenses, right? And how do we include those into the conversations that we're having? And how do we include Black women from all different walks of life in the movement? The second piece of this is um, political, right? We have to get some policy changes happening on our state level. We have healthcare professionals getting the training they need on implicit bias and racism, and that anyone who has Medicaid can get a doula at no cost to them.
5: So so tell us, how can people get in touch with you, get in touch with uh, Black Mothers in Power if they'd like to follow along or maybe connect with some of those resources that you all offer?
4: can always follow you can join our email list if you join our email list you'll get up uh, updates on what's going on some of the events we're having when we're looking for um soon we're going to be recruiting for our second doula cohort so all of those things um we would be able if you go to our website or social media you should be able to get in contact with me or with someone from the organization if you want to get involved we're always looking for volunteers We're always looking for people to help us run our programs. We're always looking for interns, for people to help us with research and policy. So all of those things, we're always looking for people. So if you're interested, come and join the movement.
5: To learn more about Shanae or Black Mothers in Power, the website is Blackmothersempower.org. They're also on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, this information can be found on our website, kywnewsradio.com. Now, if you know a Philly Rising changemaker we should highlight next, please let us know. You can hit me up on Twitter at A-R-L-E-E
1: Air. That's A-R-L-E-E on Air. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. If you know someone who would make a great newsmaker, change maker, or panel guest, message us on Twitter at Bridging Philly. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Sharadee Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.